as the architects of Gilead knew to institute an effective totalitarian system. That's a, that's a tough one for Elmo. Uh, <laughs> that's a big one for Elmo. All right. <laughs> totalitarian. Woo. All right. I'm Gabe. And I'm Kat. And we're the Ghouls Next Next Door. Talk about spooky stuff. Yeah. Like the world. Yeah, let me let me let me tell you, we're gonna say so many words today. So many words. So many pages. Like if you read our blog, you're gonna be like, wow, they wrote a book kind of about this book. World. Um yeah. Yeah, we are saddle in for a very long episode. I'm sure you saw the runtime and you're like, wow, that's not usually there an hour and we have to force them to shut up then. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Uh, we had a lot to say. It is really hard to write about books yeah, in a concise manner. But um, for those listening, we are the media le- analysis, media literacy show from a horror lens where we explore the real life, historical and actual real occurring things happening outside uh, influences behind our cinematic fears. And this is our It Is Written series where we are talking about writers and a specific work of theirs and really diving into some of the messaging and in, is terrifying things <laughs> that are in there or uh, the failure or success of work as well. Um, mm-hmm. We have completed Octavia Butler and we talked about the Earthseed series and then Last week, we were talking about Margaret Atwood, so take a guess about what we're going to talk about. Yeah. I want to preface before I say words of a long time. I know you go first, but still. Um, that I'm not as mad as uh, mad at Margaret. She's fine. It's more just like the situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing personal. <laughs> She's um, just also existing in this. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> that's how I feel. You'll, you'll hear about it. Uh, I also am not mad at Margaret. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, like I'm a big fan of hers or a decent fan of hers. I've read quite a bit of her work and um, plan to read more. I do. Um, but it just kind of comes with the territory <laughs> of certain writers that... Sometimes they're not going to be fully the things that you need, and there's going to be some questions that you ask, which is totally fine. Yeah. And this book was written in 1985. Yeah. Wasn't that long, but it was like long enough ago that there's got the early 2000s were horrible (laughs) for saying words. So anything even before that is going to guarantee to have some flaws in there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They're definitely products of their time. Yeah, so. <laughs> you still talk about them, you still critique them. They exactly. exist, but uh, you can't. It's already done. It's been written. It, it is, written. is written. So, as we say in the show, yeah, that's why there's a sequel. We haven't read that yet. Maybe that one does it a little better. We'll see. It's definitely on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, make sure you check out our TikTok for my book talk takes. Yeah. Uh, 
It's going to be interesting. So. Yeah, Gabe does great book talks. Watch Gabe say words about books. You did one. I did. You did one. Do another one. It's going to be great. Yeah. Let's hop exactly. in because it's going to be crazy. Do it. Do it. Do it. Million words. Go. <laughs> we are talking about uh, The Handmaid's Tale from 1985. And it is about set in a near future New England in a strongly patriarchal, totalitarian, the not theonomic state known as the Republic of Gilead, which has overthrown the United States government. The central character and narrator is a woman named Offred, one of the handmaids, a group of women who are forcibly uh, assigned to produce children for the commanders, the ruling class of men in Gilead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's written by Margaret Atwood. So let me tell you about this book. Um, If you haven't read it, feel free to read it. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It gets a little, like, you gotta really get into it um, just because of the way, like, the formatting of the way she writes it. Mm-hmm. Um, any, like, quotes in the past aren't in quotations, which are hard to realize until you're <laughs> you're in it. Um, yeah. Much time skip. Little yeah. explanation of Much, time skip happen. And then you're just, like, there. It's kind yeah. of like stream of consciousness. And, mm-hmm. um, and it ends rather abruptly the way that sometimes historical diaries do um Mm -hmm. and uh you should watch the show the show's great there's some things we like some things we don't like (laughs) about the show um but it does like it gets the gist and tries to do a bit more with the story than uh atwood was able to do because Mm -hmm. it's like now five seasons and hers is just the one book so well now two uh, yeah. So let me tell you about it and you can, I'll put in the show notes when I stop the synopsis so that you can just Jump go ahead. to my analysis yeah. parts um, if you want to. Uh, but I feel like everyone already knows. Like it was hard for me to be like, I'm typing this and everybody knows what happens yeah. in Handmaid's Tale. But the Handmaid's Tale takes place in the near future. As I explained before, uh, it is America and it is where a religious fundamentalist radical group known as the Sons of Jacob have assassinated the president and most of Congress and have enacted a coup and or insurrection to install their own ideal theocracy. This world, inspired by reality and much in the vein of Atwood's favorite themes, is one plagued by ecological disaster. Due to nuclear weapons, pollution, and our dirty habits, the Earth has become infertile and so have humans uh there's a decline in birth rates though the government again much like our own right now uh uh-huh. seem to care a bit for one specific type of baby than others um but birth rates have dropped so uh-huh. there is a need for children and in the show it's just like that trumps everything um uh-huh. it's like we just need babies so nothing else well, all of a sudden we forgot everything else that's problem <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like they don't compile onto each other anyway yeah. uh they want babies that are born uh they want new babies because a lot of babies are being born with uh deformant deformity or other illnesses and i'm just gonna table the ableism for a moment with that um yeah. because it's like it's still a baby <laughs> still yeah. <laughs> um but that's not really what they talk about anyway um it did remind me of pre-pandemic world i remember one of the scariest things that was going around was h1n1 swine flu and how it affected birds Mm -hmm. and there was a bit of some scare going on um and that felt very handmaid's tale to me Mm -hmm. um and the end of the novel actually explains how we ended up in that specific um uh 
pot of horrible things happening in our um, uh, world. And so it even touches on uh, just slightly uh, political and racial issues. So the Mm -hmm. book says, the reasons for this decline are not altogether clear to us. Some of the failure to reproduce can undoubtedly be traced to the widespread availability of birth control of various kinds, including abortion, in the immediate pre-Gilead period. Some some infertility then was willed, which may account for the differing statistics among Caucasians and non-Caucasians, but the rest was not. Need I remind you that this was the age of the R-strain syphilis and also of the infamous AIDS epidemic, which, once they spread to the population at large, eliminated many young sexually active people from the reproductive pool. Stillbirths, miscarriages, and genetic deformities were widespread and on the increase, and this trend has been linked to the various nuclear plant accidents, shutdowns, and incidents of sabotage that characterize the period, as well as to leakages from chemical and biological warfare stockpiles and toxic waste disposal sites, of which there were many thousands, both legal and illegal. In some instances, these materials were simply dumped into the sewage system, into the uncontrolled use of chemical insecticides, uh, insecticides, herbicides, and other sprays. Um, and you can tell that it was made in 1985 where those are some of the concerns and we live in a world that's like significantly more concerning than that. Um, Uh also AIDS is, it's not on the way out, but it isn't as fatal as it had been. People can live for a very long time with AIDS now, but Uh instead we have monkeypox and we don't know what that's doing. So there's always something. COVID, Uh, other things. Yeah. Yeah. Monkeypox. We got things going on out there. Um, (laughs) We do have like nuclear waste. We have clean coal, (laughs) quote unquote, like yeah, that ridiculous car commercial. that's like, we're (laughs) an eco car. And I was like, what does that mean? Yeah, um, we do have like, we don't have overpopulation, but we do have a lot of population. And that means we have to feed a lot of people, which means that we have a lot of animals, which means they're giving out a lot of gas. It's a lot. The environment's in trouble even more than it was in 1985. So Mm -hmm. um, completely valid. And also all of those issues mentioned uh, about um, the birth rates declining, including the simple choice that nobody wants kids right now because the world sucks in so many ways. We don't want babies. And now currently our government's trying to take even that away. It's not even just like if you accidentally get pregnant, now they don't even want you to not be able to get like, yeah. What is, what are we doing? Gilead is happening right now. Um, But this new world Gilead places white Christian cis men at places of power. (laughs) what a magical mystical world this is in gilead women are categorized they're not allowed to read write or do much of anything uh some of them are allowed to garden some of them are allowed to go shopping with not their money uh Mm -hmm. they don't have jobs with the exception of the serving class marthas um they can't have their own money or their own jobs and those things uh they're stripped of their rights and privileges and they live only to serve the men Mm-hmm. Uh, what an idyllic world, right? Our protagonist, Alfred, um, or June in the show, I can't remember if she ever says her name. I book. don't remember it being stated, yeah. Right, because I know at the end she says that Nick called called her by her name, but that's what she says. Mm-hmm. He called me by my name, mm-hmm. not what her name was. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, Alfred is a handmaid. Uh, women that, are, that were divorced 
pre-Gilead, have never been married, and are fertile are handmaids. Um, some even are labeled gender traitors for being queer. Uh, these women are forced to serve the men in power. Their names are that of the household's patriarch. So her name is of Fred. These women have one purpose, to bear children for these powerful and important men. And as Offred explains... We are two-legged wombs, that's all. Sacred vessels, ambulatory chalices. Once a month, the handmaids are forced to participate in a cult practice of state-sanctioned rape, mirroring the biblical story of Rachel who gifted her husband her handmaid. Yeah, gifted her husband her handmaid, Bila, to use as a wife and bear children. Use as a wife, not be his wife. <laughs> okay, uh -huh. And bear children. And it says, and she gave him Bila, her handmaid, to wife. And Jacob went in unto her. And that is from Genesis 30, three through five. Um, cool. So I actually was confused. Like the, I think I mentioned this in the, when we did our, with the show version, there's a separate story where there's like this one couple that are like old, I think it's Abraham and, uh, God's like, I'm going to give you children. And they like keep trying and it never happens. So they're like, I think he means you need to sleep with my, like my maid to have kids <laughs> and then God's like that's not what I meant um <laughs> he, like gets mad at them <laughs> and then they cast out that kid by the way so that's fun um you know the bible yeah. the bible's pick interesting they can choose they can choose which parts of the bible we're gonna pick here uh handmaids wear red dresses and white bonnets uh that's the distinct things that you see you see that everywhere even in places it shouldn't be in our current world <laughs> like yeah. in weddings um, there are the commander's wives who wear blue. Uh, they have some semblance of power being married to the controllers of the country, but they have failed at their womanly duty, like the only thing that they're good for, and they are unable to give birth. I want to say that is the statement of Gilead, not me. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> so women are more than, than, you know, more than just wounds. machines. Yeah. Anyway, they don't have any rights either. And are also traumatized by this new world. But like white feminists today, these wives have worked to uphold the powers of men uh, because they also kind of get some power from it. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, why mess it up? Some of they them get to even, also oppress for treat. Yeah, they get to oppress for treat. Exactly. Uh, they get to have just a little bit of power um, mm -hmm. so that like they're not at the bottom. So they feel good. Um they're not allowed to read either and are reduced to the mundane task of knitting. And Offred even explains that this pra practice could be pointless, suggesting the knitted um, pieces could be later unraveled so that the yarn could be used again. So it's like they think they're knitting scarves for the men on the front line of the war. And then they just unravel them, hand them back. <laughs> yeah, like, do that again. It's, I think it's very funny. I'm sorry. Um, and then worst of all, they also have to participate in the state-sanctioned state rape of the handmaids by their own husbands. They are also a part of the process. And there is a point where, um, you know, when it's happening, where Offred wonders to herself, like, who has it worse? Like, obviously she has it worse. But, yeah. like, that the wife does not have is does not have it easy mm -hmm. um especially if she is indoctrinated into this ideology like she must also bear the weight of failure that she can't do that for her husband and has to let this other person do it like if you think that's all you're worth and that that's all god wants from you you really messed up that can't be good to live with yeah. um so there's like some sympathy for even the wives though they're not like you know it's we see them <laughs> see women just like that out there yeah you can acknowledge that 
They don't have it easy, but that they're also a problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there are Marthas. Uh, this is a title. Uh, and they are, uh, as I mentioned before, servants of Gilead. They are either too old or for other reasons barren. Um, still, they are of use and made into maids and cooks for the house. And they wear green. Uh, the aunts are older women who train and indoctrinate the handmaids. They believe in the future and see it as their purpose to explain the importance of the handmaids, to protect them and brainwash them. Their power is reminiscent of a certain uh, social experiment in prisons where they like let some of the prisoners become, some of the inmates become like the guards and they would like abuse that power. Um, and oh, it was yeah. just like people like awful. I think it was like the Philadelphia. It's like a yeah, it's also like a common thing that they do to better oppress people. They'll like recruit communities of the oppressed group to act as hands of the oppression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about like Uncle Tom, mm-hmm. right? Um, or uh, there was that that experiment in the high school where it was like talking about like showing them about Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. where they made like all the blue eyed kids be important. Mm-hmm. And they start like attacking the brown eyed kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be like that. <laughs> um, but uh, in the book, they say, as the architects of Gilead knew to institute an effective totalitarian system. That's a that's a tough one for Elmo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one for Elmo. All right. <laughs> totalitarian. Woo. All right. As the architects of Gilead knew, to institute an effective totalitarian system, or indeed any system at all, you must offer some benefits and freedoms, at least to a privileged few, in return for those you remove. When power is scarce, a little of it is tempting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is what the scholars say in the end about the aunts, um, because they're scholars who like found her tapes in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also the Econo wives um, who wear red, blue, and green stripes. They're the wives of like the lower ranking, less important men who are expected to fulfill all the roles of the women listed above. So they're the Marthas, the wives, and the handmaids. Um, and they just, uh, you know, the one aunt says like, <laughs> like one day there will be no Econo wives because, you know, we'll have wealth in the country like that's not mm-hmm. how war works babe that's also not um, how capitalism works <laughs> yeah the novel is Alfred's tale she explains in pieces her experiences of now and how we arrived in this world into this point of time she is uh, currently in her third assignment her third house um, where she is being a handmaid and there is this fear of being labeled an unwoman for being unable to bro- to bear a child, and it sits heavily on her conscience. Unwomen are sent to the colonies, forced to clean up the toxic waste humanity is left behind. Uh, we learn later that Alfred's activist mother has been sent here. Women uh, unable to have children, gender traitors who are infertile, and other problematic women are sent here. It is, in essence, a death sentence. Death by work camp. Uh, we learn of the small ways the world changed around Alfred. Um, like the slow way that she started to notice that things were going awry. Like there's a moment where her baby is stolen Mm -hmm. um, in a shopping center. Um, It's a little more dramatic in the show. It's like kind of just offhandedly mentioned. And again, she feels like, and it makes sense, but she feels bad for the lady who like Mm -hmm. tried to take her. 
Um, Her rights are slowly stripped away, um, and we get to see those in chunks throughout her story. And there were many warning signs, but no one made moves to stop it. Uh, In the book, it says, ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. And so everyone was actively ignoring what was happening. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The frog. And the water is eating up real slowly. Um, The commander, Fred... She's a friend. Asked to see Offred outside of the ceremony, and this is something that's illegal and dangerous, but they do it nonetheless. And meeting in the library late at night, they play Scrabble and talk. Again, she's not allowed to read, so it's really exciting to see letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even when they don't make up sentences. Um, Offred is given small favors and is expected to serve the commander outside of her role of handmaid. This includes um, kissing him like she means it, um, wearing really old lingerie and he slowly shares information about his unhappy relationship with his wife serena joy and um when he gives her this lipstick and lingerie he brings her to a government-run brothel called jezebel's and it's here that offred sees her friend moira once again um who was like her best friend from before times that she also saw in the training center and didn't know where she was uh (laughs) And apparently she had broken out of the the handmaid's training facility and um, was sent to Jezebel's as a punishment. Uh, She's also a gender traitor because she's a lesbian and therefore condemned to that. Mm -hmm. Um, We, in the book, don't ever get to know what happens to Moira. Um, Offred envisions that maybe she burns it all down. She finally gets like this justice. She does something, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is just wishful thinking. (laughs) because <laughs> it's yeah. very unlikely that that's what happens um well singing that her husband is infertile serena joy uh suggests offred sleep with nick the house's servant and later the two continue the affair on their own this gives offred some semblance of sexual control and even just control of her life period and she believes herself to be pregnant uh, serena joy learns of offred and commander's re- relationship and later the secret police, uh, known as the Eyes, arrive to take Offred away. Nick tells her to trust him and go with them, that they are Mayday, a resistant group. Um, but not knowing if Nick is also an Eye or a member of Mayday re- resistance, she reluctantly goes, and it leaves the readers unaware of her fate. Um, mm-hmm. The last chapter is just some guys talking about it. Like, yeah, it's just like historians. Like, we don't know what is good or bad. Like, we don't know what happened. Yeah. Can we trust the narrator? I don't know. It's like, uh, yes and no, because she wasn't like she painted herself as the best person. Um, So one of the biggest things about this book um, that we definitely felt even stronger after reading uh, the Earthseed series is that there really is a big lack of intersectionality. whether that's race, sexuality, trans issues, uh, so, yeah, so like race, gender, sexuality, there's just not a lot. It's very dismissive. She speaks from what she knows. So let's yeah. unpack some of the things in the story and where it may fail. So the world of Gilead is truly terrifying and awful. Yes. The real horror, however, is that none of it is impossible or made up. It's all based on real things that occurred and continue to occur in this world. Atwood said herself, Nothing went into it that has not happened in real life somewhere at some time. The reason I made that rule is that I didn't want anyone saying, you certainly have an evil imagination. You made up all these bad things. I didn't make them up. The thing about The Handmaid's Tale in Gilead is that, though it's not new, 
It is a world in which these horrible tragedies are happening to a specific demographic of women now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's what the thing about Gilead is. Though we don't live in Gilead now, many of the experiences and traumas shown in the novel are experienced every day and historically by women of color, differently abled folk, and the queer population. Um, yeah. It's important to note that Atwood set out to tell a story about a specific experience, that of the white woman. And in the novel, Offred even hears um, a TV news report that explains how the children of Ham, which is a term um, from biblical precedent that was used to justify slavery, um, were being shipped out to the homelands in the West. Uh, This was because Atwood aimed to explore not a patriarchal hellscape, but one that was founded in white supremacy. not only a patriarchal hellscape, but one that was founded in white supremacy. It's important. Uh-huh. It's an important choice. It certainly leaves one wanting, as I'd like to have heard from someone other than Alfred about these experiences. But then it wouldn't have been The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> it would have been those other people's tale. Um, as explained in our last episode, Atwood works hard to shy away from speaking on narratives and experiences that she herself doesn't understand or experience. Um, This is why instead of including trans or BIPOC experiences explicitly in the story, these communities are simply written away, Um, which can be a benefit (laughs) to some degree because she's not out here trying to say stuff that she shouldn't be saying. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can also ask, you know, that's a big thing. It's like we just ask people to talk about things. these characters are written away, either as gender traitors sent to the colonies or BIPOC women sent to the West. This allows her to explore the horrible world of Gilead from the safe point of view of a white woman. It acknowledges the white supremacy without ever actually addressing it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, as if that would be like the only answer. <laughs> like we could just like, it's very, it's, it makes sense that Offred wouldn't know what happened to those people and that she wouldn't care. Yeah. You know, like that there is like for all the horrible that's happening to her, it has to be so significantly worse in the West. Not talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that part isn't there. Um, in the show, the executive producer, Bruce Miller, worked hard to intentionally add BIPOC actors to the cast, which sounds good in theory. Um, and his reasoning, he explained, was that. I made the decision that fertility trumped everything, Miller goes on to say. Also, honestly, what's the difference between making a TV show about racists and making a racist TV show? Why would we be covering the story of Handmaid Offred rather than telling the story of people of color who got sent off to Nebraska? He felt that the answer to that question was to simply have colorblind casting. He casted Orange is the New Black Samira Wiley as Offred's best friend Moira, as well as changing Offred's family into a mixed race one, her husband a black man and her daughter mixed. However, the answer I thought made the most sense would not be to remove the white supremacist threat entirely, but instead do exactly as he suggested, which is tell the story of people of color who got sent off to Nebraska. <laughs> I yeah. still want to know. Um, and by including, including a black Moira, who is now the sassy black friend, best friend stereotype, another problem, but not acknowledging the effects of a black handmaid, like in what they would experience, is ignorant. Would a black handmaid be as desired as a white one in Gilead? Furthermore, how would Offred's husband be treated in a world like Gilead, a land where he doesn't out he also doesn't have any power. He's reduced to a time in which America had been great, so great that he wouldn't have had property, autonomy, or rights. Yep. And that's not really listed at all. (laughs) Like he's like, first of all, in the show, the first character we know is dead. 
black man that's cool that's fun um <laughs> but he just saved it. he fixed it because he colorblind casted it anyway um this attempted modernization of the world fails to acknowledge the true horrors of our actual reality it huh. ignores the america we already have that is built upon the bodies of black and indigenous people the show dismisses our racist systems reducing the problems purely to that of gender so that's it which is like kind of how she lives her life. <laughs> kind of how she writes things sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And for a world so heavily influenced by eugenics, it is completely missing some of those core concepts of eugenics. Uh, eugenics was founded here in America. That's what mm -hmm. inspired Hitler. We did. Uh, and yeah. mostly used as an excuse to harm black and brown bodies and queer bodies and just, just uh, differently abled bodies. In our episode where we interviewed the director of Belly of the Beast, we discussed the forced sterilization of black and brown women in our incarceration systems. We already live in Gilead. It just doesn't look the way that you think. We are all the frogs softly boiling in the pot. The book wants us to wake up before that reality affects the white women too. It's yep. really the end. <laughs> I say a bunch in my section. <laughs> I'm gonna keep going though. Yeah. Um, the decision to send the black folks away is intentional. It's a deliberate act that seems incredibly plausible. In a Nerds of Color article by Shannon Gibney titled Race, Intersectionality, and the End of the World, The Problem with the Handmaid's Tale, they explain, the children of Ham discussed in chapter 14 of the novel can be understood as a revival of the American colonization society dream. The idea, warmly supported by white abolitionist, uh, abolitionist luminaries from Thomas Jefferson to Harriet Beecher Stowe to Abraham Lincoln, that the best way to deal with black people when you hate slavery a little bit more than you hate slaves to paraphrase Toni Morrison is to ship them back to any random place on the continent of Africa or perhaps to a Caribbean island just like instead of reparations and giving them money because we brought them here and we harmed them just send them away and then they're not our problem anymore <laughs> yeah if you, if you don't have to look at the problem it doesn't exist yeah, we just free them. We send them away. We don't have to actually do anything. Yeah. And it's a gift. They're going to thank us because they're somewhere else. Okay. Ultimately, also, Nebraska isn't either of those places. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but continue. Like, I, if anything, they probably would send them to, like, Puerto Rico. Because, yeah. like, we send all the things we don't want there. Um, and we won't let them go. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, one of the biggest issues I have with this book and Atwood's lens is how insular it feels. After reading something as complex as Octavia Butler's Earthseed series, it is hard to imagine this finite, minimal experience of a white woman in a white man's world. For all the research and inspiration Atwood did for this book, we as readers are denied the full picture of her dystopia. It ignores the real-world tragedies that BIPOC women, differently abled, and queer folks experience right now. Furthermore. Yeah. Alfred is not a hero, nor is she a feminist <laughs> for her work that's like been, you know, lobbied as this feminist tale. It is absolutely not. We actually discussed last week how Margaret Atwood was hesitant to label her work as being feminist. Even the show's star, Elizabeth Moss, who plays Alfred, uh, re refused to acknowledge the show as feminist, although she has problems herself for me to. Scientologists, but that's we also covered that in our handmade mm -hmm. episode. Um, but that's because the word feminist is seen kind of as a dirty word. It's misunderstood and changed into something vicious and hateful. It is equated with misandry. Um, Moss's Offred is a bit feminist, though. Um, 
though it's reluctant, like the actress. Um, she has more attitude and power, refusing to let the bastards keep her down. But the novel's Alfred is very much already down mm-hmm. and stays down. <laughs> Doesn't want to ever get up. Well, yeah. she finds solace in small moments of her own. She smears butter on her skin after the ceremony, or she tells her story to someone. Because when we tell stories, we're telling someone after all. We're not just speaking to ourselves. So Alfred is simply a survivor, not a fighter, which to be clear is totally accessible, acceptable. Um, life is really hard, especially in Gilead, and simply surviving is good enough sometimes totally get it but as a protagonist it leaves much to be desired she is given multiple opportunities to flee or fight and yet she remains stagnant she is lousy with privilege and um with history we are sometimes left with unremarkable stories and that's what we get with offred um there's also this big difference um in how she reacts to her friend moira coming out to her in the novel versus how offred reacts to of glenn coming out to her in the show that labels her as less than an ally at first she's is uncomfortable assuming moira must be in love with her and not until moira confirms that this is not the case does she ease back into her friendship and she also explicitly defines moira's sexuality as a choice mm-hmm. which is grossly inaccurate but offred is also a product of her time um, and again, not a hero. <laughs> She's not yeah. like this revolutionary hero, um, which again, that's kind of like how it works. Anyway, this whole like misunderstanding of the word feminist is why some people are, you know, leaning more towards what is the eco-feminist cat mm-hmm. or womanist. Uh, okay. Because like people just hear feminist and they think of something else. Evil. I was like, that's not what it is. It's equality. Like, <laughs> we just want to also have rights. Is that okay? Like, excuse me, is it okay if, like, I decide what happens to this vessel that I'm in? No. In my whole life? No. They say okay. no. Never did I feel empowered by or enraged for Offred in the novel. I was disgusted by the world around her, but I could frankly not care less about her specifically, which is why I appreciate the show, which allows us to step outside her small world. We get to know the other handmaids, the wives, and those in power. And I just really have liked to to also look at the places in the West. Mm -hmm. I think we're really missing a really big part of what's going on. Cause I bet the reason that Offred was even able to get out if she got out was because there was probably revolutions in the West. <laughs> There's probably that happening. Like what are, why? Yeah. Anyway, cause that's how that works. Like that's what happens. Well, yeah, Cause all of her ways of out were just other people doing it for her. Like yeah. she, she, didn't, she was just like, okay, I'll go along. That sounds good. Like she literally, it didn't take until she had literally no other choice. Like, mm-hmm. the black car was there to take her away, and that's the only reason she was like, well, I guess I have to go. Like, she didn't actually have a choice. The choice was, like, kill herself, uh, unalive herself, or go in the van. Mm-hmm. Join the van. We don't know what happened to her, but that's it. Yeah, and this is it about the book specifically. Way. I know it does yeah. go a little different in the show. Stuff it does, happens, yeah, it does but, uh, yeah, but in the book specifically. That's how it ends. Yeah. Um, but I want to also talk about why we lose when we don't include us all in this story which is it's believe it or not there's more than just what i was saying and uh though i believe the decision by atwood to not speak on the experiences of women or people outside of her own lens i can also see the negative impact this can have on the effect of the story again we talked last week about you having power with your pen um Mm -hmm. i can um 
yeah, you have power with your pen. You could use it. <laughs> you can yeah. also, like, now highlight things. Anyway. So, like, I use your privilege to uplift other people exactly. and let them say words. Yeah, add to it. Like, your testaments. Cause I don't know. I haven't read them yet. But they let we'll you see. publish 50 books. You could have let somebody else do one with you. Yeah. Octavia didn't get to do that. Um, yeah. By lacking an intersectional approach, we are uplifting and placing value on a specific type of woman and feminist. We're telling them that this one is the one that matters. And with this tale, we're told that the world hasn't gone bad until it has reached those specific women. It ignores the complexities of feminist issues. In an article on An Injustice magazine by Julia Marsiglio, titled Feminism Must Be Intersectional or It's Just an Arm of White Supremacy, they go on to say... In summary, when we are centering the concerns of women, by definition, that is intersectional. Otherwise, we are simply centering the concerns of a group of women. We can certainly talk about the unique concerns certain women may have, such as disabled women or indigenous women. But the idea that we can first elevate white women and then worry about other women is simply an arm of white supremacy and has led to untold atrocities. This attitude is dangerous. It needs to be left in the 20th century. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's again, it's this like equating feminism with misandry, wrong. Also, thinking feminism doesn't include a vast majority, like we make up half of the population of the entire world and not, uh -huh. and like a sliver of that is white people. Like, what are you, <laughs> like, what are you doing? So. Uh -huh. Despite its incredible impact on our current conversations around women's rights, The Handmaid's Tale is lacking. Without the interse intersectional perspective, we are robbed of the whole story. It isn't enough to say these women and people were sent away. We need to explore more of why. Atwood, as brave and brazen as she is, should be able to look white supremacy and the patriarchy in the face and call it out for what it is, the true villain. As a white woman feminist, she has ability to do that. As an ally, she should. You wield such power with that pen to call out the oppressive forces by name. And I've often done that, or like at least taking credit for doing that. Imagine mm -hmm. what we could do with that, the people we could rally. Even now, with white women showing up to Congress in full handmaid's garb, would be significantly more powerful if they knew who they would they should be fighting and fighting alongside. And if they knew that they should have been fighting this whole time. The last quote in this book is this. As all historians know, the past is a great darkness and filled with echoes. Voices may reach us from it, but what they say to us is imbued with the obscurity of the matrix out of which they come. And try as we may, we cannot always decipher them precisely in the clear light of our own day. But we can, if we as a collective voice share these stories. The past is full of echoes, and luckily, we have an ability to shine a light into the darkness to reveal them, to combat them head on. But to do that, we have to acknowledge them and fight them together. Yeah. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> Look at you did it. Round of applause, round of applause. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah, I'm probably going to repeat some of the stuff you said and just say it similarly but slightly different just because... I went on a tangent in my section. I was like, rage. Um, realistic. It's fair. Yeah. It's an angry time. Yeah, it's an angry time. And I, as I said, it's not at, Atwood specifically. It's just more so of what people do with the work she's created. Mm -hmm. What they do with 
the existence of it as if it is the most important only story that ever has existed um, and is the only one that matters. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's standard, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's, that's that's more rage. That's just kind of like history, though, too, right? It's like we are so caught up in like five stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, hold on, there's all these stories happening. And yeah. we're like, no. We're gonna look at this one so and why feminists being the worst there's a very long historical precedent for that which i will touch on but it happens all the time where they just be doing the most and the most irritating and least considerate and most self-serving way um, that sounds about right yeah where they're like i'm the one that matters no one else matters only me um yeah like a right to vote yeah, and I'm going to push people down so that the zombies can get you, and then I'll go run free. Yeah. Yeah. For whose independence is yeah. Independence Day, right? All yeah. right, take it mm-hmm. away. Uh, just as a general content warning, I'm going to be covering some like pretty heavy stuff. Uh, specifically, I will be discussing eugenics, forced sterilization, racism, genocide, etc. Like I'm becoming some heavy stuff. Uh, so if you are sensitive to that, you do not want to hear about it right now, you have been warned and acknowledge that. And when, when, or if you feel ready to approach those subjects, come join us here at the ghouls next door. In my <laughs> section. Um, so as Gabe got into a lot, uh, there are many things that come to mind when thinking of the hands made's tale, but a big thing that pops out is that it's in many ways become the face of white feminism. Uh, it presents a very specific view of oppression that doesn't necessarily ignore, but definitely glazes over BIPOC and LGBTQIA and differently able human experiences entirely. Um, we've actually covered the show version of this a few years back, and I think we did an okay job. You know, mm-hmm. we did it. Um, I don't know if we did a bad job. I think we did an okay job. Um, but as I said in our last episode, I think we've evolved a lot since then, and our view has been a little bit more honed. Um, so there's like this kind of infatuation and fear surrounding The Handmaid's Tale that is often called upon by white feminists, and unfortunately is usually done in a thoughtless way, um, or just like a very self-serving way. But in this instance of what I'm going to say, this is very thoughtless. Uh, for example, Kylie Jenner had a Handmaid's Tale birthday party. Um <laughs> Gabe sent me a picture of someone who had a Handmaid's Tale wedding. Uh, literally had like everyone write of people uh, <laughs> on so their little cards and stuff. And all the bridal party were handmaids. Um, and it's, I have noticed on Facebook and other social media platforms, a flood of older white women who've made their pro or younger white women too, made their profile picture, Handmaid's Tale robes, or have gone out into the world and, uh, gone to protests and other things wearing handmaid's tale robes and it's it's not necessarily that like you shouldn't be scared of handmaid's tale world but the reality is is that that world has already exists for people other than white women for a long time um and the doing of this the dressing up and the kind of showmanship that they put around this um acts instead of like this like powerful symbol and more of just like another way for to center themselves in a movement that impacts more than just them. Um, and I'm going to go into a lot of reasons. The problem, (laughs) the problems involving invoking the handmaid's tale specifically and only, um, to understand what's happening now is that many are doing so are not reacting because it's 
fine. Like it's been a problem. They're reacting because it's like it's finally possibly going to become a problem for white mm-hmm. women. It's like yeah. starting to impact white women. So now everyone needs to be mad. Mm-hmm. We didn't need to be mad before because that didn't matter according to them. Daily uh, Cole, hold on. Now yeah. is a bad thing. Now, now it's my problem. Yeah. So the bad was tolerable before, before it got to white women. It was fine before, according to them. Um, so what they do is they raise the handmaid's tail up and are like, "This is the tail that matters the most. This is the only feminist story that matters. None of the other things matter." And that's that's my main problem with it. It's just like what mm-hmm. people do with it um and as Gabe kind of talked about like to be honest the lack of representation in the Handmaid's Tale book is not surprising in that one Margaret Atwood is a white woman cishet white woman mm-hmm. she only can she only has that lens she could have helped, got other people to partake and used her privilege to uplift those voices but we are where we are it was 1985 and it is written um but it's also not surprising in that like the future that is proposed in the Handmaid's Tale is exactly what future white cishet men would want. Um, yeah. It's a future that they're so desperate to return to because it's something that they like did kind of already have mm-hmm. before. And they're like real mad <laughs> that it's not yeah. anymore. Um, it's a future in which white women are forced to produce more white babies to uphold white supremacy. Um, but this time with a twist of not explicitly naming white supremacy as the cause or like the history so much, as you said, it's like a set, a little, part of the book chapter 14 they're like it happened they sent everybody away we're not going to talk about the fact that like this entire thing is just drenched in white supremacy yeah, it's like um, hella racist yeah uh, <laughs> so it ends up being a future that mimics yet minimizes the past historical context and abuse that has been done to bipoc and lgbtqia and differently able humans well the book acknowledges that anyone who doesn't fit this like cishet white mold would be murdered enslaved abused just as they have been before it doesn't impact that at all and that's the problem Mm -hmm. um the show pretends that like it kind of doesn't exist uh and that they whitewash everything or they just colorblind it they're like it doesn't matter if you Mm -hmm. have different colors uh so where the handmaid's tarot compares to something like parable is that but also that it doesn't provide like any hope or important next steps either um there's no framework suggestions on ways to prevent it fight it and you're given like a protagonist that actively doesn't fight it if anything like she stands in the way of other people fighting it and escapes Mm -hmm. literally just from passive existence she's just waiting for someone else to save her um Mm -hmm. and even though the book and show like totally missed this entire point is it's not surprising, but that in erasing these stories, as Gabe said, by disregarding them entirely, they're playing into the hands of the oppressor. They're playing into white supremacy. They just become another pillar of that. So many people invoking the handmaid's tale today do so in the same way that the show has done disregarding the BIPOC LGBTQIA and differently abled experiences in a quest to save themselves. They throw them in front of the zombies. Um, so in a t- article titled Why Comparing Roe v. Wade Overturned to Handmaid's Tale is Problematic by Ruto Maria Johnny, um, they speak to this further, saying Atwood's novel has been denounced as a white feminist dystopia, which erases the actual slavery and sexual violence endured by minorities and is only referred to in passing as exiled Christ- children of Ham. While some argue that this plotline is a depiction of white supremacy, the appropriation of black women's slavery is still problematic. Women of color are lashing out at references to The Handmaid's Tale when their ancestors have lived through the same fiction, which has been dismissed and forgotten. 
the reproductive freedom of women, especially women of color, have been regulated throughout history. Um, in fact, much of white reproductive autonomy has been maintained and built upon the commodification of BIPOC bodies with wombs capable of reproduction through medical exploitation and experimentation. Um, According to a 2016 Huffington Post article, over 60,000 people in 32 U.S. states were sterilized for eugenics, a scientific racial improvement, in quotes, to breed more white people. Between 1997 and 2013, more than 1,400 women prisoners, primarily non-white in California, unknowingly underwent sterilizations as per an expose by Erica Crone's documentary, Belly of the Beast, which we've covered and Gabe mentioned above. Um, it's... If interested in learning more about that, I recommend checking out when we interviewed the director, um, and this is one of our previous episodes. So like, why did we end up with this story? Um, why does it choose to focus on what it does? It can be understood further when looking critically at Margaret Atwood's lens in the writing of the story in an article on environmental history now titled Bodies and Sexuality in Gilead, a queer eco-feminist reading of The Handmaid's Tale by Osme Okira, or Arkia. Um, they describe Margaret Atwood's inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale as Margaret Atwood took inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale from two major events, the rise of the Christian right in the United States during the 1970s and 80s and the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. Um, as a cis white woman, Margaret Atwood's lens is already skewed by default. If their inspiration came from those two events, the perspective they're pull pulling from doesn't prioritize the long history of sterilization, eugenics, and slavery that existed long before the 1970s. Uh, it's a lens that is much more focused on where we're going and how that could impact white cis women instead of where we've been and how that has impacted BIPOC and LGBTQIA bodies. Um, the world Atwood presents is not one that is new. It is one that has already been done and tested on BIPOC bodies, uh, which what's new is how it would specifically impact white women. Uh, a friend of the ghouls, Jackcon Music 215, um, Jacqueline Constance, speaks on this in their TikTok channel. Um, I actually, this is like, one of the videos that really stood out to me. So th they kind of go on to say that a cishet white men, two cishet white men, cis women are nothing more than breeders, that they'll gain none of the perks that they've been promised in their alignment with white supremacy, that while this abortion ban will disproportionately hurt BIPOC communities, it was done as a means to increase white births. Um, as mentioned uh, in our previous episodes, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the active assault on women's rights slash bodies is all motivated by a similar desire for a specific type of child, of white children, of Christian white children. Uh, white supremacists believe their culture and, cult and future are under attack and that they are at risk for being erased and made the minority. Um, to combat this, they need to force women to have birth, to have children. Um, this idea doesn't come from nowhere. All we need to do is look back to history and think uh, of the creation of birth control and its muddied, abusive past in Puerto Rico. I would like to thank Gabe for organizing this because this was a once in their section and it's now in mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in an article on Vice titled The Racist and Sexist History of Keeping Birth Control Side Effects Secret by Bethy Squires, they explain that the decision by the creators of birth control to experiment on bodies they deemed expendable. Um, the team began to have difficulty getting clinical trials off the ground in America, partially because contraception was still illegal in most states and partially because of the high dropout rate of the sim in their similar studies. 
So Pincus and Rock looked to Puerto Rico, where concerns about overpopulation, fueled in part by the eugenics movement, meant that there were no birth control restrictions and abortion was legal on the island. In fact, many Puerto Rican women were sterilized without their consent or knowledge in a procedure that was colloquially known as La Operation in 1950s and 60s. Pincus and Rock assumed that they would find a large, compliant population of test subjects. They believed that if poor, uneducated Puerto Rican could use the pill, anyone could. Um, later, when Puerto Rican women began to complain about the side effects and dropped out of the studies, the team took a crueler method of continuing their trials, and they go on to say that women in Puerto Rico dropped out of the study too. And so they started looking for women they could force to participate both at home and in Puerto Rico, writes Anne Friedman of the New Republic. Women locked up in Massachusetts mental asylum were signed up. Women enrolled in medical school in San Juan were told that they had to take part in the medical tests or face expulsion. Again, these women weren't told what the pill was for. Instead, they were supposed to shut up, take their medicine, and submit to the frequent invasive medical exams. What... When even this wasn't enough, the team decided to tell the women that it was a form of birth control, but neglected to explain the side effects or that it was a trial and experiment. Three women died during the study and were never autopsied to see if their participation in the study led to their deaths. Dr. Rice Ray concluded that the pill, at least in the form and of dosage it was given to the Puerto Rican women, had too many side reactions to be generally acceptable. Um, Alice Wilson, leader of the Women's Liberation Collective, later said that the experiments of the experiments at the hearings that it must be admitted that women make a su superb guinea pigs. They don't cost anything. They feed themselves. They clean their own cages, pay for their own bills. They rumorate the clinical observer. We will no longer tolerate intimidation by white-coated gods antiseptically directing our lives. So the issues go beyond that of just gender. Um, it is at the heart racist and founded in eugenics. The founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, an American feminist named Margaret Sanger, was an advocate of forced sterilization and an in an in the end justice magazine article by Julia Marsiglio, feminism must be intersectional or it's just an arm of white supremacy. They explained this notion of eugenic feminism that was foundational to first wave early feminism and inherently linked to the suffragette movement explaining that Sanger advocated strongly not only for the forced sterilization of some 15 to 20 million Americans whom she considered undesirables, but also for their segregation into concentration camps. Her idea of undesirables, it, undesirables expands to racialized Americans as well, as demonstrated by the quote from her private correspondence. We don't want the, world, the word to get out that we want to exterminate the black population and that the minister is the man who can straighten out the idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Um, it is also historically relevant, relevant that white women intentionally betrayed black women in the suffragette movement in attaining the right to vote in 1920s. Um, and there's just like a long historical precedent of white women being the worst. Um, the result uh, made it that many black women were not allowed to vote until 1965, even though white women were afforded the right to vote in 1920. In the face of racist opposition, white suffragists betrayed the black women who had also fought for the right to vote, says Elaine Weiss, author of The Women Hour, The Great Fight for the Vote. We have to acknowledge, Weiss says, that white suffragists used 
as one of their politically exponent arguments. You know, there's more white women who will be voting than black women. So don't worry. White supremacy is not going to be endangered. Um, white feminism has a long historical precedent of aligning itself with white supremacy to elevate their own position. They have a long history of throwing people to the zombies. They have a long history of aligning themselves with white supremacy and the patriarchy with the hopes that they'll reap some of the benefits. Um, the history just adds even more context to why white feminism being placed above intersectional feminism is so dangerous and is rooted very much in upholding white supremacy and racism. Um, in the same Nerds of Color article that Gabe spoke to, race intersectionality and the end of the world, the problem with The Handmaid's Tale, Gibney shares how these horrors in The Handmaid's Tale are very much already happening, just not to the people portrayed in the novel, at least not yet. As Goldswitch explains in The New Statesman, it is already happening. Today, there are par parts of the world in which renting a womb of a poor woman is indeed 10 times cheaper than that in the US. The choice of a wealthy white couples is to implant embryos in the bodies of brown women is seen not as a colonialist exploitation, but as a neutral consumer choice. I can't help wondering why, if the fate of the fictional off-red is so horrifying to Western feminists today, the fate of real-life women in surrogacy hostels is causing so little outrage. And further than the discussion of race, there is a class issue as well. Women of lower-income families and even now finding themselves faced with a similar choice to that of off-reds. Um, I suppose the main argument of these feminists would be that real-life women choose to be surrogates, whereas off-red does not. But the distinction isn't so clear. But is the distinction so clear? If Offred refuses to work as a handmaid, she may be sent to the colonies where life expectancy is short. Yet even this is a choice of sorts. As she herself notes, nothing is going on here that I haven't signed up for. There wasn't a lot of choice, but there was some, and this was what I chose. In the real world, grinding profit Poverty drives women of color to gestate the babies of the wealthy. As one Indian surrogate tells an interview, Simi Pasha, why would I be a surrogate for someone else if I don't need the money? Why would I make myself go through such pain? Um, so the dystopian future in this book isn't dystopian or future. It exists now and has existed. It's just not happening to cis rich white women. Yeah. Um, as stated previously, Atwood was inspired by the rise of the Christian right in the United States during the 1970s and 80s, as well as the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. I want to specify that this is less of a problem with Atwood's lens herself and more of how the, inspir the inspiration and call to Iran specifically can be problematic, as is often done in an Islamophobic way and is often without the context of what actually led to the revolution. It's also something that's often done by Islamophobic people when they try to detach the U.S. and Britain from the actual cause of that revolution. Um, and what's often not acknowledged about this is that the revolution in Iran was a revolution puppeted by British and United States oil interests. Um, the article mentioned previously, previously written by Osme Arkia gives some historical context to the Iran revolution, and they say, before the revolution, homosexuality and same-sex encounters were practiced widely in Iran and were rarely perceived as taboo or sinful. In the wake of the revolution, thousands of LGBTQIA plus people have been prosecuted for their lifestyle, continuing to this day. The link between profit generated from oil business and the exploitation of women and oppression of queer people can be traced back to the Shah Pahlavi's refusal to sell oil 
to Britain and the U.S. and his desire to nationalize it. The interconnection between bringing foreign oil firms or nationalizing the Iranian industry and the freeing of women and sexuality or oppressing both cannot be disregarded. When earth is being violated and used for profit, so are women and so is their sexuality. Um, We go into the further historical context of how colonialism and exploitation of Iran by Britain and the United States has led to where they are now. So the same Christian countries that demonize Iran and how they treat women are the ones that made that treatment possible because they wanted oil. I've seen TikToks that play into this uh, where they, it's like kind of a, the calling out of radical and misinterpreted religion in general, uh, specifically Mm -hmm. quoting the Bible and parts of the Bible and then like not telling people that that's what they're doing. And then they're like, wow, the people are like, wow, that's so horrible. That's not my religion. That's like, that's probably so they'll say something Islamophobic or horrible. (laughs) And they'll be like, no, that was from the Bible. Actually, it's from this section of the Bible, actually. And they're like, oh, what? I gotta go. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear you say that. That's not real. Um, and my point there is that the Christian right manipulates a re- religion to oppress people all the time. Um, they manipulate the words of the Bible just as any other totalitarian power would. Um, yeah. And they do that in the book too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, one of the aunts tells Alfred, uh, what, uh, what is it? Something or the meek. Oh yeah. She like says the very first part of like, she says the thing, something of the meek, but then yeah, says like, precious as a meek, meek, and then she she leaves out conveniently that the meek inherit the earth because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's like Just pick and choose. Yeah, that's what people do, <laughs> or at least people who are trying to like create a system of oppression, um, or like find it more convenient for other people to be oppressed if it like positions themselves in even a vague sense of power. Um, But using the Bible and white supremacy to validate the exploitation that they've built into their empire upon their manifest destiny is something that's like a common theme, both in the book, but also just like in our country. Um, Mm -hmm. My last big point is my problem is that the view of this like rise of Christian right as inspiration, like it's, it's implies that the, rise of the Christian right implies that there at any point they fell. Um, and there, mm-hmm. I understand that there was like the shift of Republicanism to include religion times in a more drastic way, instead of just like good old fashioned capitalism and racism. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of times people will be like the far right, the far right. And it's like, our founding fathers were the far right. Mm-hmm. This is not new necessarily. Like the constitution is the manifesto for the far right. Like they say separation of church and state, but like most of the laws that have been made are drenched in. They also white, say black people aren't people. Yeah. So. Like white supremacist <laughs> Christianity gross times. Um, so like there's a reason that other countries teach about the United States as being like a radical far right country. Like they say, even our Democrats are like far right compared to like progressive countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that people are so scared of within Gilead, literally one already happened, already exists, currently exists. Um, but they're also like funded and managed by our government and have been funded and managed by our government. So yeah, the perspective of the rising far right is multifaceted in that Republicans being religious was the 1970s thing. So I get like why she pulled from that. Um, but uh, where they used 
as I said, the Bible instead of just good old fashioned racism, capitalism as a reason to be awful. But the result of the shifting in public opinion also led to this um, in that it was no longer cool um, to be racist and a bigot that uh, shifted to damning those things instead of like applauding them. And now they just applaud them behind closed doors. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that's why so many white Americans shout, make America great again make America white again, unapologetically and without consequence, guilt, or critique. Uh, They want genocide and exploitation, but they don't want to feel bad about it. They want to be able to be racist without people telling them it's wrong. And they want the power white supremacy has promised them, much like what white women have historically done in this country, allying themselves with the oppressor in the hopes that they will reap the benefits. Gabe already did this quote, so I'm not going to. But it's just that people, if they're given a little power, it's good. They want it. They, They knew that that was a way to get people to participate um, is to dangle power and have women participate in being the oppressors. Um, The reason white women at large largely haven't found or haven't fought for intersectional feminism is because they want that scarce power. They don't mind sacrificing others to get it. And it's the environment that like facilitates so much of what's happened in modern times too. Um, It's the environment that's facilitated January 6th. It's the environment that facilitated in the past, the civil war, uh, it's basically just like the North has gotten better at practicing being racist quietly and every of the South wants to be racist loudly again. Um, mm-hmm. so we're in kind of in this environment that allows for the parable of the suburb America that allows for a Gilead America. Um, and a lot of ways we're already there, uh, have been there, uh, and people want it back. So just as a fun additional context, Gabe kind of touched on this, but, uh, that's largely what led to the rise of Nazi Germany. Um, in World War I, many Germans needed to be proud of being German again. They were willing to sacrifice the Jewish people to achieve that end. And it was the de- desire to like feel German nationalism again after great economic disenfranchisement by foreign powers, as well as a period of social rep- reform and progressivism. So like in Nazi Germany, women were starting to get rights. They're getting to go to college. They're like, they're, all this like progressive stuff was happening, which forced a lot of people to like do unwanted self-reflection and experience shame. Um, and that largely facilitated everyone kind of just being like, it's okay. We just want to feel good about being German again. So they're like mm-hmm. fat totalitarian genocide is fine. Uh, not everyone, obviously, but enough people that that happened. And Gabe already said that, Nazi Germany based their concentration camps and own eugenics on the United States eugenics and sterilization work, as well as American slavery in the bulk of their uh, policy creation for Nazi Germany. So to close out, I'll once again quote the article by Asme Arakia that outlines Gilead, uh, just like kind of gives you like a one little quick run over of what Gilead was and is there really a differentiation much from what we see today. So one pillar of Gilead was the push of an extreme binary gender roles and compulsory heterosexuality. Uh, People are separated based on their genitals. So that's the pillar. Um, Does our country do that? Yes, (laughs) our country Mm -hmm. already does this. Our medical system, legislation, schooling systems, social structures, bathrooms, all do this. We have gender reveal parties, gender clothing, gender toys, gender bathrooms from the moment of conception. Room full of adults are obsessed with the genitals of babies, um, obsessed with the genitals of other adults. 
obsessed with sexuality. Um, as a reminder, gay marriage was not federally legal until 20, June 26, 2015. Same-sex sexual activity wasn't legal nationwide until 2003. There are bills every day attacking trans Americans. Another, so like, it's, we're already there. We're already very obsessed with the gender binary and compulsory heterosexuality. Um, another pillar of Gilead was the commodification of bodies with wombs capable of reproduction, which we also already do, um, either by removing the capacity for reproduction of BIPOC, LGBTQIA, and differently abled humans, or by forcing reproduction on white humans, or by economically forcing reproduction on women across the like across the world for white women gain uh, and rich people gain. Um, as I said, or creating economic systems that force the necess necessity for BIPAC surrogacy. Um, the commodification of bodies with wombs capable of reproduction is something that the government continues to do in the legislation they push and the violence they profit from, um, et cetera. <laughs> so the next one, uh, the next pillar listed for Gilead is freedom and authority are given to white heterosexual men who use this power to kill queer people in the name of God, going as far as hanging their bodies on the wall as a reminder of punishment for homosexuality. As mentioned previously, they actively pass legislation that harms LGBTQIA plus people and especially trans people. Um, while they don't hang them on walls, they do try to erase their existence. Um, they do push legislation that actively harms them. They don't really prosecute people who murder them. Um, as stated, marital and sexual rights weren't in existence until the early 2000s. Uh, it could also be argued about the freedom and authority given just to the first part of that, white heterosexual men in the U.S. and how that actively does harm people um, through racism and et cetera. They also are the majority of our government. They have been 99% of our presidents. So, yeah. Yeah. Just a little, little bit more. <laughs> Mm -hmm. What's happening now, in addition to all the things I already said that are just like kind of concerning that people should would be like, wow, that's don't don't do that. Um, I learned that in Missouri, it's illegal to get divorced if you're pregnant um, and they enforce that. Um, the two good things uh, <laughs> is that the right to contra contraception has been codified, at least in the House. Cool. Um, and it's moving mm -hmm. to the Senate. Only eight Republicans voted to support this um, out of like the hundreds of them. Um, mm -hmm. So that sucks. <laughs> also, uh, they did codify uh, interracial and gay marriage in the House again. Mm -hmm. Still waiting on that Senate, though. Yeah, it was like 157 of them voted against it and like 48 voted for it so that was fun mm -hmm. um and also there has been something that like was just very concerning i don't it's not like necessarily real um something that's been going around tiktok that i did research but just as a fun fact in 2021 north carolina there was a bill called bill 158 that attempted to make it legal to murder a pregnant woman who you knew was seeking an abortion to protect the baby specifically saying that to get to abortion was an act of first degree murder punishable by execution and that abortion should be prevented with the use of deadly force. This bill has been brought up recently as it has been proposed uh, 
as a form of misinformation, although the bill does exist. Like someone proposed that, whether or not they got it passed or not. Like someone was like, that's a great idea. Let's try that. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's more just concerning that it was proposed at all. Although the people saying like, it's happening right now. uh, It's not like they pushed, no one's really supported it. It was put put up and they're like, no, that's no one's going to. or or like revolution will happen recently um but and it's not to say that there aren't like hundreds of laws being attempted to be passed across the country that actively we had the whole roe v wade episode where we talked about that Mm -hmm. among all the other things um in terms of the oppression of women uh and why intersectional feminism is just so essential why people need to care about it because uh, it's not you're not going to get the benefits guys you're not you're not just like stop it you're not going to it's blessed are the meek yeah blessed are the meek blessed are the meek but they don't talk about how they're going to inherit the earth mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah there was i saw something on, on tiktok it was like footage of like a small town meeting and it was that they were trying to um have anti-racist curriculum in the school and this uh-huh. like woman was like arguing like we need we need to see both sides yeah. so we have to show the benefit the, uh, the other side and uh-huh. so everyone was laughing at her because they're like so what you're saying is we need to teach racism like that's literally because the opposite of anti-racism is, race- is racism oh. so what you're saying is we should teach people to be racist like and she just like it was it. yeah so funny to me because, like you were so that's how deep you are into this like nonsense <laughs> that yeah you're, like it's like do you hear yourself and the truth is they don't they don't hear themselves so they don't yeah and i mean even to quote parable of the sower it's like when she told her friend about the system mm-hmm. and was like we need to be prepared to like run and like we need to make go bags and like everyone eventually these walls are going to fall and we're all going to die she was like no nah, i'm gonna go tell my mom i don't that sounds scary and i don't want to deal with that so it's and gonna, then, i'm gonna go not deal with it and then she it goes to an industry town spoilers mm-hmm. and then the whole town was it yeah. was they, that happened the walls came down yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah no, she was right but it's like the whole, the whole idea of the cave and it's like if people are plugged into it they're not going to want to leave the cave and that's yeah. just a reality so. and also it's like to tell you that it was wrong yeah like the white supremacy and the patriarchy both benefit from white women not realizing that they should care about other people about them being racist like they, they actively benefit from that so I understand why it's yeah. hard for them but also um, I also say like for all the work. like like Margaret Atwood is in Canada right and mm-hmm. she completely like at the point of that being published 1985 uh, that was still when um the uh schools were still active in Canada of the indigenous population being mm-hmm. sent to schools and taught to be white and erased of their culture and some of them murdered they uncovered thousands of bodies uh just recently yeah. like so oh that's <laughs> another thing that was on the internet mm-hmm. that's stressful um yeah. that they're trying in the u.s to like remake that okay like that you can take the, the indigenous schools. children away yeah that's what they're trying to do yeah um, it's um sorry. 
Yeah, you can watch, watch our episode about the schools. Um, it's in the um, Rhymes for Young Ghouls episode mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Jeff Barnaby. Um, we, yeah, I just think like for all this, like clearly these things haven't happened to her, right? Mm-hmm. And these problems haven't happened to her, but she does this research, right? She goes in she learns about the Iran war uh, revolution. She learns about um, American history, like again, <laughs> being from Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, you can do the research. Like yeah. you, you clearly are capable of doing mm-hmm. the research and putting in the time to tell a full thought out story, do that. And yeah. like understand like the world that you're creating is bigger than you think it is. Like you have to really consider everything, all part of it. Like I was just thinking that I was like, I was writing a book that was heavily inspired by Handmaid's Tale and When She Woke and like a bunch of other books of similar vein that were was feminist in nature. And one of the biggest critiques that I got when I first started was that it was um, really small. Like I had mm-hmm. essentially a whole, I had to invent a whole world for this situation to have existed. Mm-hmm. And I was neglecting that. And that's what really like stopped me from writing it too, was because I was like, I don't know if I can think of this. Like I have to do a lot more work. I have to do a lot more research. So I was like, so I'm not going to do that right now. Um, and so uh, the fact that she who has all this research, has all this ability, can't do that, you know? Yeah, I'm sorry. Just stop and ask, you know? No, it's so real, though. Like, and if you don't know, ask somebody. But I also, maybe she did that in the new one. Maybe maybe she did it, you know? My my main problem is that just, like, people are like, this is the only one. Mm -hmm. This only, this little tiny view is the only view that matters. Yeah. That's not... (laughs) If anything, that's that's gonna take us so much longer to fix anything because y'all think it's the only view that matters. Yeah, and it's like I want to read Ursula Le Guin's book, mm-hmm. but I know that like when we were looking her up to figure out if we were gonna do this episode, like do an episode on her, we don't know anything about her, so it would be weird. But um, she herself was like, I'm not, I'm not a feminist, or like I yeah. did more harm than good. But it's because she was a product of her time, like she was writing at the time that men were writing the same things like the fact that she exists as a woman in that space was literally the most feminist thing that she's done yeah not like the content entirely so i think like that's something to say like for her to admit like Mm -hmm. Like, actually don't give it all that credit don't give me all that credit that ain't ain't it um is really important and i feel like atwood could could do that instead of you know going around with pictures of her in next to handmaids or being in the show <laughs> uh-huh. she was in the show she like hits uh she hits off right in episode one oh, um, gosh. This, <laughs> she's in the background go check it out people yeah um yeah i just rewatched it i was like hey that's her uh yeah anyway. i need to rewatch it too i just like to know what's happening i know so much yeah. more happened since we stopped watching it so i was like i should probably figure that out yeah that's why i started from start from the top like a drop um <laughs> Suzu. Suzu uh, wants to be on the camera she feels very strongly about it yeah well i hope you enjoyed our episode i hope you understand the importance also that again like i enjoy the book i enjoy yeah it was, i was i enjoyed the book but i was also like ugh, at the end i don't know i was just like i what do i do now like i just felt sad and i get that because as you said like that's usually how historical things they're found and they're just interpreted without actually being able to talk to the person so it's like also i get it but i like the book yeah. i did i did it was fine it was but i was i just remember like ending and being like 
oh, I'm sad now. I'm disappointed. Yeah, yeah what, it's not as empowering. What do I do? Motivating <laughs> with this. As Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> no, I, I read Parable bad. first, so I was like, what I was. I, that's what I wanted. That was the precedent. That was. I yeah. was like, I need it to be as good as this. Um, like, I just want to be. Yeah. You don't want to be sad so bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just like ask somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> someone else about the world. We'll get real sad. Yeah. Uh, watch an episode of ours. Anyway, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Next week, we're going to be talking about um, N.K. Jemison. So that'll mm-hmm. be really fun. And uh, this, her work is also <laughs> emotional. <laughs> it's yeah. also real oh my god we read we do all this stuff i we do feel very strongly you should probably read the books that we cover in the series but also we do it for you in a way yeah Yeah. you know that's why this episode's almost an hour and a half because we we did we did it for you yeah also read it's good for you probably if you can you know (laughs) yeah and remember to like and subscribe let us know your feelings on handmaid's tale um like don't get all butthurt about it yeah you, trust and me it, you don't have to come to bed for it at which she can do that herself yeah <laughs> you do yeah. not have to save her and i'm not crapping on her i just recognize her lens is different yeah it is and it is <laughs> she did a, she did an okay job for 1985 she told the story she was telling yeah. that's it and she didn't so she didn't try to say somebody else's story and i'm not saying that's fair her. you know she's fine yeah, but let us know if you have any suggestions for things that we can read in the future. Because yeah. um, Kat likes books now. I'm I do. I, reading like, I just finished a book today. I read like yeah. a bunch of books all day, all the time. Uh, it's mm-hmm. my favorite thing. And then, um, yeah, and then we'll be moving on to something else at some point. But, yeah, don't get married. <laughs> we'll eat your kids. Or we'll take them. them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take them. Make you make them. Uh-huh. They're actively doing that right now. Yeah. Who's he, Charlie? Charlie, you need to go. You can't be here. She says, I think I can. Okay. 